0: It's been a uh, busy morning thus far. It's been good. Um, just want to give you a couple of updates. Uh, John and Faye uh, are out of town this morning, but just received word from John just a few minutes ago that his cousin in Bradenton, Florida, uh, suffered a heart attack and passed away this morning. Uh, and so now they are traveling Um and so if you will keep John and Faye and, uh, and John's family kind of uh, in your prayers as, uh, as they are on the road. Um, but to also to kind of segue out of that, uh, as, as Tim mentioned, John has been put forth as a, a shepherd for, uh, for Cornerstone. And uh, we feel that God has just been calling John and preparing John for a long, long time. We feel like he has been doing the job of a shepherd, and so uh, we're in a period of discernment and a time of prayer, and uh, we hope that you continue and have been praying uh, for John and for this appointment, and um, if if there are no objections to it, then we're going to call John next Sunday to uh, to join the uh, the shepherds of this church and I think it's going to be just a really incredible thing uh, it's amazing that uh, I had several of you come up and say I knew it I knew it was John before you said it or some of you even threatening like it better had been John uh, which we affirmed and I agree with it. it was good that was good uh, it was it was uh, I'm glad you said that because uh, I've uh, so far I've heard nothing but uh, affirming comments about John. And I think that's just a really great thing. To go along with all the other great stuff that's been happening among us. Because we've had some really, really good stuff happening. Yes or no? Yes or no? Yeah. Lots of good stuff. We've got engagements popping off. We've got babies popping out. We have baptisms that have been happening. And let's see, we're anticipating... Uh, More of all of those things. So that's good. Yes, God is doing great things among us. Not only that, uh, you know, we've got good events going on. We have served a lot of people recently. We have an opportunity next Sunday to serve others. We're uh, looking already into our fall outreach ministries and outside the walls and how we can serve in the various places we got our fall festival coming up and it just it just is rolling 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 but there's been it's been really really great uh, to just see what God is doing among us right and I hope I hope that you're telling people about it okay because it's great to cheer about it in here but what's really great is to take it outside the walls and to tell your friends about it right? So, I would like you all to commit to telling at least one person this week about the good stuff that's going on here at Cornerstone. Agree? We good? Can we all do that? Good. I hope we will, because I think uh, there's just, it's just really, really, really good stuff going on. Um, hey, how about that song from Kendall? Isn't that an awesome song? I lo- he shared that with our life group last year. Love the message of it. I love the, through, through everything, God, you're still there. You're constant. The world may be great. The world may be terrible, but no matter what, God is there. And I appreciate him uh, adding that song because I just kind of asked him for it last minute. I said, hey, you think you could do this song? And he, he said, yeah, no problem. I can do that. I can do that. Well, we're in, we're in Acts 19 again, and we're kind of picking up the story from, from last week. And we'll get there in, uh, in just a few minutes. But I was uh, scrolling through uh, social media uh, over the past few days, and I noticed you know, there's some disturbing things that happen on social media, right? And I think that if one is going to engage in social media, one needs to be responsible for one's words and one's actions on social media. Because we have to be that in regular life, right? On non-virtual um, life, we have to, like in actuality, we have to be kind to one another, Right? Um, sometimes you don't see that in social media, especially if someone expresses an opinion different from the one you might hold. Does anybody else know what I'm talking about? Or am I the only one? Yes. Man, I was reading something the other day that one of my dear friends posted. He just posted a question: Who in the world, who would you most, who would you like to meet? You know, what public figure would you like to meet? And, of course, there's a whole list of, of things. Nobody said my name. Nobody said they wanted to meet me. But, you know, that's all right. I don't blame them. But he mentioned, he mentioned that he would like to meet former President Obama. And, of course, that unleashed a torrent of, of comments of, of all kinds. And there were some that were, uh, that were very positive Uh, And there were some that said, yes, I would too, and here's why. And there were others that were also well thought out and said, I wouldn't, here's why, but here's who I would like to see. Okay, and it was all respectful and, and, uh, you know, they were disagreeing, but they were doing it in the way that you are supposed to do it, you know, in love. And then, you know, then something that happens often in social media, the comments section gets hijacked. And it all went downhill from there. And it started becoming a name-calling. You're an idiot. He's an idiot. She's an idiot. One person went as far to call another grown woman fatso. Are, are, are we children? I mean, come on. These are grown people saying things like that. And it's, you know, and and... And, of course, and, I, and I've seen the same thing on the other side about current President Trump. You know, it's not just one person. It's all people, you know, that, that can, can draw criticism. And, and criticism is fine, and we live with criticism. But if we're going to criticize or if we're going to have a, a difference of opinion, we need to learn how to do it. <clears throat> i say because I'm not sure the mic's working. If we're going to disagree with somebody... We must do it the right way, in love, okay, in love. And the, the, the really disturbing part of that all was that most of the people who were doing the name calling and saying really ugly stuff, guess what other name they called themselves by? Christian. And I wonder why we don't get this, why we don't get that behind, I mean, I, mean I, I, I get we can sort of be anonymous behind a keyboard, but not really anymore, right? I mean, because it's everywhere. Social media is everywhere, and not only do I have to be responsible to you for my actions and for my actual words, I have to be responsible for the words that my fingers put out in the cyberspace, right? Right? Okay? And remember, I mean I've said this for several weeks, and I have to remind myself of this constantly, that as soon as we start assassinating character, I mean, it's over. You've lost. Okay? And if if, if we have to resort to character assassination, then our point, our position must be rethought. It might be right, we just haven't thought it all the way through or we haven't expressed it in a way that is respectful to to another human being, right? And, you know, how can we, you know, and I wonder, how can we withstand attacks from dark forces and oppression and injustice and all of these things when we can't even stop attacking each other? These are Christians taking shots at other Christians. Now then, understand, I have done this, okay? I'm guilty of this too, so this is is for all of us. I'm reminded of another Facebook post that I saw late last night by a guy named Patrick Mead. He said this, love each other always. Repeat as necessary, and it's always necessary. That's profound, is it? It's also profoundly hard to do. but it is also necessary that we must we must love one another, especially if we're going to have an influence for the gospel, especially if we're going to influence people for Jesus, there should be no such thing as a rude Christian, right? They'll know you are Christians by your. Man. I love that idea. But I'm afraid a lot of times that's not what we're known for. We're known for being rude. We're known for hypocrisy. We're known for acting one way around church folk and another way around non-church folk. And, And to quote James, brothers and sisters, that ought not be. It ought not be. We must be loving people all the time. Are you with me? And I know that, you know, I know, I know it's tough. I get it. I struggle. There are days when I am unlovable and I'm uncharitable. I'm unloving. And when I do that, you have my permission to correct me in love. Got it? And we need to have that, permit. we need to grant that permission to others as well, right? That if we're being unloving uncharitable, rude, please come tell me because I might not be meaning to do it or it might be that I am meaning to do it and I need you to come say, hey, look, we we've being a jerk because the way of Christ is not jerkdom. The way of Christ is love. Okay, sermonette over, sermon beginning. Thought you were done, didn't you? In Acts 19, we see an example of this done the right way through the, through the life of, of Paul. If you'll remember last week, Paul is in Ephesus, and there's been, uh, you know, he, uh, he's been doing a lot of good there. He's been doing a lot of teaching for several months in the synagogue, which might be longer than he normally gets to stay in one, but eventually there's a little trouble. And so he just moves from the synagogue over to the lecture hall of of Tyrannus, and he is able to lecture there and talk about God and talk about Jesus and and the way for for a a long and extended period of time. And then there is this encounter. There is this encounter with the sons of Siva, who are these Jewish exorcists, and they hear about Paul, and they hear that he is so powerful that a handkerchief just has to touch Paul and then touch the person and they're healed. And they want in on that, what they perceive to be magic. You remember that? And so then they start trying to cast out demons, not in the name of Jesus, but by the power that Paul is using. We don't really believe in this Jesus. We just believe in, in what Paul and what Paul is doing. And so we're trying to cast people out by the name of Paul and the things that Paul is, is doing. And the demon... Now, one demon-possessed person speaks back to those seven sons of, S- of Siva and says, I know who Jesus is. I know who Paul is. But you're in trouble because I don't know who you are, remember? And that, that, that demon-possessed man ends up putting a beat down on these guys so that they leave naked and wounded. You know? That's, I mean, that's pretty bad. But then what happens is that the word of the Lord begins to to spread its way through Ephesus. And it said that you had all of these people, all these people who had, had practiced magic, and they took all of their magic books and they burned them publicly. Remember that? As a sign, that hey, look, we're no longer about this. We're burning this publicly so everybody sees it. There's no secret about it, and it was a tremendous cost to the people. We are, we're we're burning this. We're done with this. And it said that the word of the Lord grew mightily. And the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord prevailed. Well, so then Luke picks up the story again today. And he starts telling us about Paul's plans. And he's making plans to to go back to Jerusalem. He wants to go back there and he wants to meet with the church there. And he says, even eventually, I'm going to go to Rome. And so he sends Timothy Uh, And he sends Erastus on to Macedonia while he stays in Ephesus for a little bit longer, tying up a few more loose ends. And it's in 23 where we're going to pick up the story today. Notice verse uh, verse 23. It says, About that time, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. A man named Demetrius... A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the artisans. These he gathered together with the workers of the same trade and said, Men, you know that we get our wealth from this business. Now, did you notice, did you notice the phrases no little? In there, there were two different times in the uh, the NRSV that they were used. Right there. It says, during this time, there's no little disturbance that broke out concerning the way. And then Luke does it again in verse 24. He says, he's talking about uh, Demetrius and this silversmith and this trade in the shrine of Artemis. And it brought no little business to the people who are, are crafting and, and creating these things. All right, this is a literary device that, that Luke is, is, is using. And he's trying to express an understatement here. But Luke is using this this play on words to make it clear that this disturbance, you know, this little, no little disturbance from the way, that it's not really about religious devotion. That's not really their main concern. Their main concern is it's about their business and about the perceived threat to to their income. As a matter of fact, that's why he says, hey, look, men, you know we get what? We get our wealth from this business. All the status, all the acclaim, all the money, any power that we might have, it comes from this business where we take silver, we make these shrines to the great goddess Artemis, and hey, look, this is, there's a problem. These people from the way are causing a tremendous disturbance. And we have the reminder again that when the gospel begins to have financial impact, trouble is just around the corner. Okay, when the gospel begins to affect things outside of church, expect trouble. Does that make sense? You know, as long as church... And the gospel, as long as the gospel stays in the church, nobody really has a problem with it. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever thought about that? As long as it stays home, as long as it stays put, as long as it stays inside the walls, nobody really cares. But once the gospel begins to challenge worldviews, once the gospel begins to to challenge the way someone thinks, the way someone lives, once the gospel of Jesus begins to, to challenge finance and money and economic impact, then voices begin to be raised. They begin, begin speaking up, and we've seen this. We've seen this happen in, in Philippi. Remember, Paul is there, and he encounters this girl who's got a, a demon. Okay, she's a slave girl, and her slave owners are using her to get rich because she's a fortune teller. Paul has compassion on her, casts the demon out, and what do Paul and Silas get for their trouble? They get arrested. They're beaten and flogged without a trial, thrown in jail. Because the gospel began to challenge what was going on there. And it began to affect the economic interests of these slave owners there in, in, in Philippi. Okay, as we saw last week, all those people who had magic books took all of them, brought them out in the middle of the town and started a barbecue. The cost of those books was worth 50,000 pieces of silver or 50,000 days wages. Luke is, is setting us up for what's coming. Because trouble is is on the way. In fact, it's going to hit Paul in this text. And then there's going to be a couple of chapters where things are just kind of okay for Paul. And then it's all going to start getting tougher. And he's going to be arrested. And there's going to be accused of things. And there's going to be trial after trial after trial. And he's going to be shipped from one place to the other. till he eventually ends up in Rome and imprisoned there, which is ultimately going to end with his head cut off. All for the sake of the gospel. This is what, what Paul is, is willing to endure. But this, this idea that when the gospel begins to have financial impact, that it brings on trouble, that's kind of what is, is driving the text today. It's kind of what dr- is driving what is happening in Ephesus. So what do, we, what do we know about Ephesus? It's a, it's, a, it's a biblical city. It's a very important city. It's a city that is still in existence today. It's located in what the Bible calls Asia Minor, or you might just say Asia. It's what we know of as modern-day, what, anybody know? Turkey. Yeah, and it, it's right there on the coast of the, the Mediterranean. And it's a very important, very important city. It's been addressed several times throughout Scripture. Okay? Uh, there's the, the book of Ephesians that Paul is going to write to them. Later on, Timothy is going to end up ministering in Ephesus, and Paul is going to send a couple letters to Timothy. And then the last book of the Bible that we have, the the Revelation, you open up to Revelation chapter 2, and you're reading about these seven churches. The seven churches of Asia Minor, and Jesus is speaking to these churches, and lo and behold, there is Ephesus right there on the list. So it's a very, very important city. But not just to, to Christians. Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. So it's kind of the Rome away from Rome. And Rome was okay with it. There's a lot of stuff that was going on in Rome, like the, the worship of the goddess Artemis. Now then, she's not a Roman goddess. She's kind of a, a Greek goddess. But remember that, that Rome Rome is fairly tolerant of things. And as long as whatever it is you're doing does not interfere with the Roman way, or the Roman peace, then Rome is going to say, hey, look, let's just live and let live. But as soon as you put a toe out of line, Rome is going to be there and is going to have something to say about it. Okay? And what is going on in, in, in Ephesus is you have, this, you have this, this worship of this goddess, Artemis. Now then, somebody w- was reading ahead this morning and they asked me about Artemis. And here's what we know about Artemis. Artemis was a mother or kind of a a wife goddess. The people of Ephesus regarded her as the the divine protector of the city. Not only that, she's considered to be the sustainer uh, of civic life in the city. Said that she saved the city. And as we're going to see in just a few minutes, it's believed that that, a meteorite landed in Ephesus. And it was from the heavens. And it was this statue of Artemis. And you see the, you kind of see the, uh, the picture over there. You see the, uh, kind of the crown she's wearing. It said that the, Ar, uh, the, the meteorite is contained in, in that crown. And so this is who Artemis is. Now then, the Romans were okay with her. But they didn't call her Artemis. They called her Diana. Now, Artemis... Artemis was the most popular deity in the Mediterranean world. Okay, she is the most worshipped goddess in this area, in this, 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 this all of Asia. And she was adorned with animals when you see a full picture of her. Her dress is, is covered with animals and, and, and bees. And Artemis was considered to be what? The queen bee okay she's the queen she's the boss she's the one that's going to lay down all of the rules and so you have Artemis and this cult that worships Artemis at the temple of Artemis that we're gonna look at in just a minute but then you have these priestesses that work in the temple cult of Artemis okay and they are the honeybees okay That's their job. And then you have males who are castrated. And you have the honeybees who serve as the priests, priestesses. You know, they do the teaching. They do the speaking. They do all of this other stuff. And they dominated the men. They dominated the males there in Ephesus. Okay? telling them what to do, controlling them, domineering them. And when we understand a little bit about Ephesus and when we understand a little bit about Artemis, then it also sheds a little bit of light about the context that Paul is going to later write to Timothy about when he issues the the silencing of the women texts. Because you have these women coming out of this, this cultic worship where they're used to dominating people. And this stuff is going on in the church and it's unsettling and it's all this. And Paul is saying, wait, you've got to learn. You've got to learn to listen. You've got to learn what this is about. And so this is kind of what's going on here in, in Ephesus. Then you've got the temple. If you're familiar with the Parthenon in Athens, then you should know about the Temple of Artemis because it was four times the size of the Parthenon. Anybody seen the Parthenon in Nashville? Who's seen that? It's pretty big, is it not? Four times bigger than that. It had 127 columns that you kind of see here. 127 of these columns that went all the way around kind of supporting the roof. They were 60 feet high apiece. And it is a very important to the economic and civic life in Ephesus. Okay, A lot of money was brought there. It was held there. It was loaned there. It kind of functioned as a, a, a bank. Okay, And so if you start speaking against the temple of Artemis, is that going to be a good thing or a bad thing? Now you start going against the financial institutions, and that usually does not go real well. Okay? And then you also had this great theater. Oh, by the way, the temple of Artemis was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So that's how massive, how impressive this temple of Artemis was. But then they also have this, this theater. And there you kind of you kind of see it. It's just it's massive. Here's another view, it's kind of the, the looking down. That theater there in Ephesus would hold up to 25,000 people. It's amazing, is it not? That you have people in an ancient world able to do things like this. You know? you know, And look at all the technology that we have today. And look at the technology that they did not have then, yet they were able to produce all of these things. All of these things are going to come into play in the, in the rest of our story. Okay? We've already seen them talk about the shrines. We've already seen them talk about the, the, the silversmith guild. We've seen them talk about Artemis, and they're fixing to talk about the temple, and they're fixing to talk about the, the theater. So you have this guy, Demetrius, who is kind of the, the leader of the silversmith guild. Somebody say he's the president, he's kind of one of the financial backers. He's the one that brings in the money, and makes everybody else really, really wealthy, okay? And if you have somebody who is making you really, really wealthy, what do you want to do? You want to please that person, right? That's an important person in your life, okay? And Demetrius calls all these people together, and he says, hey, look, you know that all of our wealth, it comes from this business of, of silversmithing of creating these shrines to the goddess Artemis. In verse 26, he says, You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost the whole of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that gods made with hands are not God's. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may, may come in disrepute, into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great Artemis will be scorned, and she will be deprived of her majesty that brought all of Asia and the world to worship her. So say, look, all of our wealth, all of our financial gain, everything that we've got that matters to us, it's under threat. Oh, and by the way, Artemis' name is going to come under fire as well. It's not so much that this is about protecting Artemis. It's about protecting the money, protecting the, the income that the gospel is now beginning to affect. You don't think they know about 50,000 pieces of silver worth of books being torched? They know, and they can see the writing on the wall that this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ is going to have a financial effect. And so Demetrius says, we got to stop this. And so he gathers the silversmith guild and says, hey, look, our money, our income, our livelihood comes from this business. We have to stop this. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and they shouted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion, and people rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. Paul wished to go into the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the the officials of the providence of Asia, who were friendly to him, sent him a message urging him not to venture into the theater. Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they'd come together. So they grab two of Paul's guys. They go rushing into the theater, and it's overwhelming because they're shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They're filled up this amphitheater here. Paul, being Paul, wants to go in. He wants to go in and to address the crowd. What do you think Paul would talk about when he got in there? Jesus? You think anybody think he would not talk about Jesus? Or the one God? That's absolutely what he would do. But what do his friends do? They say, Paul, you can't do this. This is crazy. They will kill you and they stop him even some of the important officials of the city who Paul has befriended said hey Paul don't do this I know these people don't do this and then you kind of have the the mob mentality happening the the, the theater is filled and they're shouting great is Artemis of the Ephesians and it says that, that half the people there don't even know why they're there but hey, here's a crowd. They're shouting. Let me jump in and shout with them. And it says there's total confusion going on. Now then, watch what happens. Verse 33. Some of the crowd gave instructions to Alexander, whom the Jews had pushed forward. Alexander motioned for silence and tried to make a defense before the people. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, all of them shouted in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The Jews want the Ephesians to know that they have nothing to do with this group, this sect called the way. Does that make sense? They push Alexander up in the front. Hey, you've got to go tell them that we're not with Paul. We're not with this group that follows Christ and this resurrected and all of this stuff. We believe in the God of the Hebrews. Go up there and tell them and The Ephesians say, hey, look, you're a Jew. Okay, this is just kind of semantics. Okay, you both believe in the same God. You're a Jew. And they end up shouting the guy down for two hours. Great is Artemis. Great is Artemis, our protector. Great is this goddess. Now then, watch what happens. But the town clerk quieted the crowd. When you you see clerk, don't read that as clerk like we might think. Think more along the lines of of mayor or a, a city official that holds a lot of sway. He quieted the crowd and he said, Citizens of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the statue that fell from heaven? There it is. Since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. And then notice verse 37. You have brought these men here who are neither temple robbers nor blasphemers of our goddess. Now then, there's not a a, a tremendous amount of of theological thrust in this passage. I mean, it's primarily Luke kind of telling the audience about what happens when the gospel begins to, to push into to secular territory, but I believe that there is a key point that we can draw from, from this verse 37. We're going to circle back to it in just a minute. The city clerk goes on, he says, If Demetrius and the artisans with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges there against one another. If there's anything further you want to know, it must be settled in the regular assembly for we are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. When he had said this, he dismissed, he dismissed the assembly. Remember, Ephesus is an imperial city. It's the capital of Rome away from Rome. Okay, And Rome is going to let you do whatever it is you want to do as long as what you do does not interfere with Rome. If you want to be a Christian, great, don't let it interfere with Rome. If you want to be a Jew, that's fine, don't let it interfere with Rome. If you want to worship Artemis or any of the other panoply of gods and goddesses, that's fine, just don't run afoul of Rome. The moment you do... Rome is going to be there, and Rome is going to put it down. Okay? Ephesus holds this, this incredible status in the eyes of Rome. They know how important they are, and so the important people that matter, they stand up and say, hey, look, we've got to stop this. Okay? We have to stop this because if we don't, we're going to turn into a riot, and Rome is going to come in here, and Rome is going to shut us down, which means we might get downgraded, and we won't be as important and the the temple won't matter and what if they destroy the temple and you know we think well surely Rome wouldn't do something like that well yeah what happened in AD 70 in Jerusalem Rome came in and destroyed the place they don't want to offend Rome they don't want to do anything that is going to affect their economic situation here in in Ephesus and so the clerk quiets them down and he kinda gets them kinda gets them back on track and, and gets them to, to go away and, and dismiss. And again there's another there's another thing that says when the gospel threatens the status quo, we, we have to be on our guard. Because again, as long as the gospel and Jesus and all those things stay in house, it's kinda okay, right? But when it starts to challenge things outside, then attacks are coming. When it starts to push against the way people believe, or it starts to push against worldviews, there is trouble that is inevitably coming. Now then I said verse 37 is is kind of important to this. That's where the clerk says, you've brought these men here who are neither temple robbers nor blasphemers of our, our goddess. And that's, that's important. It that leads us to our community connection. And it's simply this. As you engage surrounding culture with the gospel, live innocently as you radically witness to the power of Christ. Does that make sense? as you engage people around you that might have a a different belief system, a different way of thinking, live innocently as you represent Jesus to those people who might think, live, act, talk differently than you do. You see, one of the things that we learn about Paul and his companions is they never never bash, they never ridicule anyone else's beliefs. He didn't name call. He doesn't question the intelligence of those he disagreed with. He lived innocently as he engaged the surrounding culture with the power of the gospel. And as followers of Christ, this is how we must conduct ourselves as well. We must be innocent in the way that we conduct ourselves. And and Jesus had something to say about this. In Matthew chapter 10, he's getting ready to send the disciples out, and he gives them a warning. He says, see, I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus knew that when they went out, you know, when, when, when... When the gospel left the house, so to speak. And it went out and it began to challenge status quo. And it began to affect economics. That there was going to be trouble coming. And he knew that they would face opposition. He knew that they would be arrested. He knew that they would be brought to trial. That they would be beaten. And most of them even killed for their faith. He knew these things were coming. He knew they would go before governors and kings. And so this is what he told him. As you go out and as you encounter these things, here is how you are to conduct your life. Be wise as serpents, or your version may say shrewd as serpents, but be innocent as doves. Be wise. In other words, be on your guard, but also be innocent in that you do no harm. And this needs to be our This needs to be our approaches as as well. You see, when we see or hear or read of hatred by those who, who claim the name of Christ, we have to speak up. When we see or read or hear hatred of people in general we as the followers of Christ must speak up, stand up, do something, step in, try to bring peace into a situation. We must demonstrate love and demonstrate Christ. Instead of railing at at people that we don't agree with, instead of, uh, of, of name calling and assassinating characters, instead of Screaming our heads off or typing our hands off at, at Republicans or, or Democrats or homosexuals or whoever you want to say. We need to love them instead. It doesn't mean we have to agree with them. But if we are going to call ourselves Christians, we must love Everybody. And sometimes that's really tough to do. But we have to love everybody. No matter who they are. No matter what they believe. No matter what they do. Paul writes about this in Second Corinthians later on. And he basically says, hey, look, don't go on attacking people that you don't believe. No, don't disassociate with people who don't believe the same as you. He says, if you, if you were supposed to do that, you'd have to get out of the world because there's just too many people that you have disagreements with. He says, instead, be, a, be reconciled. Be reconciled to one another. We have to recognize that every person that we come in contact with is an image bearer of God. Every person that we come in contact with is a soul that Jesus died for. And every set of eyes we look into is someone Jesus went to the cross for. Whether we believe what they believe, whether we agree with how they believe whether we support how they act or not. You see and that's it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. But this is what it means to be a follower of Christ and this is exactly what Paul did. And it's it's tough for us. Okay, it's tough for us. But probably none of us will face a life or death situation in this. Paul, in the midst of everything he encountered, still still did this. This is what he wrote to the Corinthian church later on. He says, We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced where? In Asia. For we were so utterly, unbearably crushed, that we despaired of life itself. That's how bad things got for Paul. That the, the the persecution, the attacks, the arrests, the beatings, and later on he'll list all that stuff out. The, the challenging of his authority. This stuff had gotten so heavy for Paul that he says, Hey, look, it was so bad that... that Life was not even worth living anymore. But yet in the midst of all of that stuff, he did not strike back. He did not lash out. He continued to present a witness to the power of the gospel. He goes on in the the next verse. He says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not rely on ourselves but on God who raises us. The dead. Kind of sounds like through it all. So the message to us is this. As we engage with people, people who disagree, agree, we have to be shrewd in our handlings. In other words, we have to be aware. We can't afford to be naive to the things that are going on. But we also have to be innocent in how we deal with others. Does that make sense? I know we've kind of gone all around the world today. But it's important because the witness of Christ is Is what we hold forth to people. And Paul is always concerned about the witness of Christ being tarnished, which is why sometimes he kind of can go after people. But it was never unbelievers. You ever notice that? So as we engage people, live innocently but radically reflect witness and be compelled by the power of Christ. Let's pray together.